future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, welcome, welcome! Holy moly, uh, man! Sorry for the little bit of a late start this morning. I had some uh, little technical difficulties um, first with the camera, and then with the mic, and then this, and then that. Um, pretty crazy, pretty crazy. Uh, welcome, welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop podcast. It is Friday. December 9th, 2022. Yes, it is our Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash, <clears throat> excuse me. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. <coughs> and hey, everybody, don't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show, um, we're going to just talk about a few things today. Um, This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Moore v. Harper. The case will test the court's willingness to embrace a fringe constitutional theory, the so-called independent state legislature theory, which would give the power to state legislators to override the results of democratic elections. And U.S. colleges and universities are facing a quote-unquote crisis. Yes, the shock doctrine sky is falling narrative tells a tale of natural disaster, while political choices and destructive managerial policies and trends are largely excused. And we have Kirsten Cinema, yep, announcing that she is changing her party affiliation to independent. And we've also got a comment already from Janet basically saying, thinking about Cinema switching to independent, she will not get a cascade of small donations to boost her coffers for a 2024 run, the way small donors support independent Bernie Sanders. That is for sure, but it will be the big money that will go to Cinema if she decides to run. And WNBA star Brittany Griner returns to the U.S. after spending months in a Russian prison for having uh, basically uh, some marijuana inside a vape tube. Yep. Prosecuted as drug trafficker. Yes, this is a classic Russian move to uh, get back its own political prisoners. And with they did a prisoner swap and she just returned um, back to the States, um, greeted by her wife. Today, a little closer to home, Pennsylvania's Department of Education has released standards for a culturally relevant and sustaining education that seeks to integrate policies similar to DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and like those initiatives that drove those right-wing extremists to flood school board meetings with conspiracy theories and vitriol. 
Yes, that's going to run into head first into uh, what has been happening in these right-wing school boards, like my own district, Penridge. That don't want to leave out Central Bucks. <laughs> or what's happening in Souderton now. Now, Penridge School District, meanwhile, moved forward with a plan to cut social studies requirements despite strong opposition from parents, teachers, students, and members of the community. The school board voted in a 5-4 move to, ahead, uh, to move ahead with the cuts after a contentious debate even among members of the board. Yes, and Owen, by the way, uh, Joan Cullen is no longer going to be the board president. Nope. They elected new president and vice president. And... Uh, Gotta love it that uh, I'm gonna get her name wrong if I don't hear Banis Clemens. I just know her last name. I always forget Banis Clemens, but she will now be the vice president of the board. Yes, how about that? How about that? She is the one who pushed so hard to eliminate um, the social studies requirements. We're gonna have a lot to say about this in the months coming up because uh, there's so much that's happening at Penridge that is just it's just off the hook. Anyways, in addition to that, um, a little up the road from us here in Bucks County, up in Lehigh County, Starbucks and Whitehall, PA, voted to unionize. Congratulations to the Starbucks over on MacArthur Road and all the staff there. Yes, the staff voted 16 to 10 in favor of forming a union. And now they begin that process of getting their first contract. Looking for a living wage, looking for more rights on the job. You know, got a boss, get a union. That's how he goes. Yes, for more PA Progressive Talk, you want to tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, wherever you see his streams. And you got to subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And if you haven't already, check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where their bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, or maybe you got gamers in your family, well, you got to check out The Game Inn. That's with two N's. The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report card. How great is that? Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at The Game Inn. That's with two N's. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page or follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's. It's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. Got some show notes. Uh, this coming Monday, uh, Monday, December 12th, I'm welcoming Garen McGarian back to the show. Uh, he was on uh, over the summer. Um, basically, we we're talking about kind of, uh, you know, more kind of whistleblower stuff over the summer. Um, but we're going to be digging into this case that I mentioned in the uh, intro today and Moore v. Harper. That's that Supreme Court case that could upend American democracy as we know it. Um, in the Bucks County Beacon, Bagarian warned that the fringe constitutional argument at the heart of the case, known as the independent state legislature theory, paves the way for single party rule and disenfranchisement of vo voters. 
Bulgarian is an experienced litigator, is a trial lawyer, licensed in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the state of New Jersey. He's represented clients in both state and federal courts. Um, does a lot of great stuff in protecting whistleblowers. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to his, um, uh, his last appearance on the show. Um, but uh, he uh, wrote a piece in the Bucks County Beacon, um, I believe it was initially in July. The Bucks County Beacon just kind of updated and republished this, this past week um, about the kind of Moore v. Harper case and how dangerous this is um, and how much of a test it is going to be for the, um, you know, the future of American democracy. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. So tune in on Monday night. And if you did not, if you did not catch our interview um, um, this past week with Raylan Roberson, um, she works for uh, Common Cause and they do stuff on protecting election integrity by, you know, kind of getting on social media and uh, tracking down disinformation and making sure that we're pushing back against that kind of disinformation and holding the social media uh, platforms accountable. Uh, she was amazing. Um, I, I can't wait to have her back on the show. Um, it was so heartening to hear the kind of work that she's doing. So if you missed that, it's a great interview. Go back and check it out um, as usual on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast and or, or on our YouTube channel. But look, guys, everybody, men, women, children, space aliens. <laughs> no, listen, look, everybody, if we want a progressive alien, progressive alien. <laughs> progressive feature we need progressive media support pull no punches homegrown progressive media today uh become a patron of raging chicken for as little as five bucks a month simply go to patreon.com slash rc press become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month help keep the media and the movement and the movement in the media become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rc press today well, uh, yeah, off to a little bit of a rough start this morning at all. Um, sorry about that. It's, uh, you know, I think it's a combination of uh, there were some updates on my computer um, and some of the programs that I use for this show. Um, in addition to this being the, uh, the last week of my classes, I taught my last class on Thursday. Um, and... Uh, we do like, you know, presentations, student presentation stuff at the end of the semester. And it's like my favorite time of the year, to be honest with you, because um, it's all about their work, you know, um, and we get to hear how they've, you know, come together and a bunch of different projects are working on and just they're just doing just great stuff. And it's always moments like those at the end of the semester when hearing the work that students are doing that, um, you know, keeps me going really to be honest with you um say that it was worth it <laughs> um and always reminds me um about uh just what great students they are you know um that's always been what i've said anywhere i go about you know students at Kutztown university and i'm and, and i'm look i don't mean to single out the only students there but they're the students i know but uh i've, I've loved working with uh Kutztown university students because uh they just bring a whole just bunch of stuff to the table that's so interesting and they're hard workers and um it's pretty great so anyways that closes out the week so as much as that's enjoyable it's also you know when all the grades are coming in and all the grading is there and there's like end of the semester meetings and due dates and all this kind of stuff so i'm a bit exhausted uh um as well so a combination of exhaustion and uh little technical little glitches um made us a little bit of a rough start this morning but um but yeah, why don't we start with uh, since I, you know I read that comment from Janet, which she's saying that uh, you know 
think about cinema switching to be an independent. I mean, this just came up in my newsfeed this morning. I mean, it's um, and I she just I just made the announcement and so on. But um, you know, you see the 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 headlines that come up. Like for example, this one from Politico says cinema switches to independent, shaking up the Senate. Um, which it does. Remember that's the after, after uh, Raphael Warnock. Oh God, I didn't even put that in the headlines, right? Because you know uh, uh, we talked about it so much on the show uh, on Monday ahead of the um, ahead of the primary, the Georgia primary. But yeah, that's the big news. Uh, Raphael Warnock won the uh, the the Georgia uh, special election or the runoff election against Herschel Walker um, to give Democrats a fifty-one forty-nine. Um, majority in the Senate um, with now, of course, you know, uh, not to have the spotlight turned too far away from her. Uh, Kirsten Cinema immediately, you know, a couple days later, basically lets everybody know that, yep, she's uh, not no longer going to be a Democrat. She is going to be an independent, uh, which basically gives uh, the Democrats a 50 to 49 plurality, I guess it would be technically. Um, but if she continues, as she seems to be suggesting that she's going to continue to caucus with the Democrats, um, that will still um, keep the leadership plans and so on in Democrats, um, Democrats favor. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's it's something else. Right. I mean, it's like one of these it's one of these perfect examples of uh, of the way that Kirsten Cinema has operated in the Senate. Now, the way that she always talks about it is like, well, I'm I'm independent and fiercely independent. And I've, uh, you know, worked with Democrats and Republicans. And this is the next logical step on my, my stage. And, you know, I got to say is that I think that's a fairly honest assessment <laughs> to be some way is like she's not doing anything that she has uh, not been indicating she's going to do anyways. Um, it's pretty clear that she will probably not be able to uh, win the uh, if she runs for re-election, there's well, but I, I don't want to say go get out too far uh, ahead of my ski over my skis. But um, she's going to have a real uphill battle if she decides to rerun uh, or to run again for Senate as a Democrat because she's basically sold out Democratic um, agenda so much. So she'd probably have a primary challenger um, by now being an independent. The big question is, is that is she going to run a Senate candidate candidate uh, uh, campaign as an independent? Right. Um, and the way that that'll break down, just so that we're clear about this, is that there is uh, people say, well, why doesn't she just switch and become a Republican? Well, there's no way that she could win a Republican primary. None. Right. I mean, she's gotten she's been, uh, you know, as as much as she wants to say, we look at Arizona as being kind of like a, a hotbed of kind of craziness. Um, that's exactly the reason why she can't win that primary in the Republican Party, because like she is not conspiracy theory group, right? She is not the Carrie Lake, right? She is way, way too quote unquote moderate for um, um, the Arizona Republican Party. That doesn't mean that she couldn't win as a Republican statewide, but it means that she can't get the nomination in her in that party. And she knows that she's not an idiot. Right. I mean, she's like she's smart. Right. You may disagree 100 percent with her, but she's smart about her calculations. That's why she is so calculated. Right. Because um, she's about herself. Right. And she knows that if she becomes that independent, as she now is, the money is going to flow to her from these big donors because they know that her that she could essentially um, uh, 
she could essentially be the uh, the power broker in the Senate if she so chooses. Right. Because now what this does is it puts Manchin back in the kind of, uh, you know, kingmaker position in the Democratic Party. Because if Manchin then votes with uh, votes with Republicans, right, that means it's a 49 49. There's no majority. Right. So Kirsten Cinema can be the, you know, or to, I'm sorry, if he says, yeah, Kirsten Cinema could come in and can decide, you know, which side is she on? And, you know, the big um, the big. Uh, the big bucks are going to go to go to her and flow in her pockets. I mean, that's the way Manchin is operated too, as well, right? They stay in this kind of "quote unquote" center position because they know that they um, they op they uh, they they are given a disproportionate degree of power, um, and therefore um, the money will flow in their direction. So that's what she's going to do. Um, but I think Janet is right by saying that you know she's not going to get the cascade of small donations to boost her coffers for a 2024 run. Um, I agree with that 100 percent is that she will not get small dollar donations. Um, a matter of fact, uh, if you listen to um, supporters of hers when from her initial Senate run uh, for, you know, they uh, that backed her initially because of her independence, because of her commitment to, um, you know, uh, uh, being against climate change. She seemed to be very kind of more progressive in, in terms of as a candidate. Um, that people who got behind her and that supported her um, basically have seen what she's done since she's been in the Senate as selling out everything that um, she said she believed in. Um, so she's not going to get the support, right? She's not going to get grassroots support at all, right? She doesn't have a constituency outside of big money at this point. Um, so that's what it's really. Now, again, you know, why is she doing this now? I think it has everything to do with wanting to kind of increase her own stature. I mean, it's one one thing you could say about Kirsten Cinema is that she has been um, nothing if not been um, full of kind of self-promotion and very, very protective of her own kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, brand, if you will. Um, so we'll see. But that just adds like another example another thing to the um you know our little like hope dish right i mean warnock won thank god warnock won um warnock wins so you think okay now democrats have a little bit more of a breathing room so that maybe we can get kind of pushed through some things but now instead no we're still going to have to see we're going to see chuck schumer having to kind of decide whether or not they're actually going to push forward for a strong democratic agenda or if they're going to um, do what they've always done is kind of like having to moderate their position um, so they can kiss, you know, kiss the shoes of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. So uh, we shall see where this goes. But it is a uh, it was a, a tremendous week to see Warnock win that race. Um, and after the kind of money that flooded into to, to Georgia on both sides, frankly. Um, that was encouraging. So, and frankly, look, I mean, that guy deserves to be in the Senate. I mean, he was by far, um, the better candidate. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, just objectively about, you know, being able to kind of like sew sentences together and kind of have deep thought and care about people, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's that, pretty amazing news. So we shall see. Um, now this week, uh, I, I don't want to talk too, too much about this because uh, we will be covering this on Out to Coop Live on Monday, as I said. Um, but um, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Moore v. Harper this week um, on December 7th. Yes, yes, right. Pearl Harbor Day, um, which is ominous in its own right. Um, arguments in that Moore v. Harper case, right? Now, this case is basically testing this 
what had been completely considered to be a um, a a completely discredited like extreme fringe theory. Um, and now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this. Now, if you recall, this whole idea about the, the independent state legislature theory um, first kind of popped into kind of mainstream news coverage because it was part of the arguments that some of the Trump's lawyers were using make to try to make the case that um, certain state legislatures, most of them be Georgia. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, Georgia was the one that kind of got a lot, a lot of attention um, with the pressure that was put there. But basically, you know, these swing states like Michigan, um, Ohio, uh, that, that basically um, they could um, disagree with the results of the, the, the people's voice, right, the actual ballots, and decide by themselves um, to allocate their electors in a different way, right? So they could basically reduce what we do in an election, the amount of votes that are being cast, right, by counting up the votes and the majority of votes is kind of who, who gets the electors. Um, instead of that, they could they could look at those um, the votes that we cast on election day or, or up until election day as kind of like customer satisfaction surveys, you know, to take into consideration. Right. It doesn't have any status when it comes right down to it, but just take into consideration. So this why this became so critical is because we know that um, Republicans, particularly right wing Republicans, ones that are sympathetic to the kind of, you know, stop the steal nonsense, the conspiracy theories around kind of election fraud, all that kind of stuff. Um, they have kind of gained a, uh, a significant foothold in state legislatures. Um, that first happened in the 2010 election. And then because that was 2010, that was a census year, they were able to gerrymander in their districts, their state districts especially, um, in order to basically ensure that they were going to be able to kind of, you know, maintain one party rule for a long period of time you know the um um what do you call it um wisconsin has been really the the uh the poster child for this because in wisconsin you see that you know even when um the number of people who voted for uh, a democratic candidate in the state of in the state of wisconsin outnumbers right um or you know like let, let, let's say it's a 50 50 split Right. So, you know, say Democrats win, say, 48 uh, percent of the vote. Republicans win 52 percent of the vote. Right. Um, in, in kind of statewide offices. Well, so you would think that there would be a relatively even balance in the kind of state legislature. Well, that's not the case. Instead, you basically see the split being kind of like, you know, more like 60, 40. Right. You have, you know, if you have 100, you had 100 legislators just to make this simple. But, you know, 60 percent or 60 of the state legislators would go to Republicans, but 40 would go to Democrats. Um, they basically have baked that in the cake as, as a way of kind of maintaining power. Um, and when, you know, kind of Governor Scott Walker was voted out um, by the people, that same legislature decided to strip the governor of um, the governor's office of any significant powers um, to prevent the governor basically for doing something in opposition to what the Republican controlled um, self-selected legislature does. Right. So and, you know, Wisconsin is just the easiest case to see this, but this has been happening all over the country um, and did happen. Um, now, we saw some pushback to that. Um, 
We saw uh, flips in Michigan. We saw some significant gains here in Pennsylvania. Um, but this, you know, this case um, that was being offered by Trump, you know, to try to say that, you know, the states can they can choose to, uh, you know, assign their electors as they will because they have this independent status. Right. That the uh, federal government or the kind of elections are only kind of, you know, um, or counting, you know, dem- allocating electors based upon the um, the majority of votes cast is only one option about the way that you do. Ultimately, it's the state legislature that decides how the electors are allocated and they do not need to abide by the Democratic vote. Well, this was seemed to be like a fringe, you know, a fringe idea until Trump, you know, Trump's lawyers started pushing this. And um, so it came up in the summer about, you know, cases case was kind of like move forward is kind of appealed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, most election watchers or, or most court watchers, we used to say, in normal circumstances, right? Um, that means when you do not have uh, an, an extreme right wing majority on the court um, in recent things, most of them kind of would say, well, yeah, it's unlikely they're going to take this case, right? Um, however, given the makeup of the court, they were like, well, you don't know. I mean, we've already seen them overturn Roe v. Wade, right? Um, basically taking, uh, you know, 50 years of precedent and throw it out the window. So what's the guarantee that they won't take up this kind of fairly extreme and fringe um, theory in order to accomplish political ends, right? In order to ensure that Republicans are going to be able to kind of maintain a uh, kind of single party rule uh, for the foreseeable future. And so it was an open question. And then I think it was in July that um, they agreed to there were at least four justices, I believe, who uh, said, no, we want to take it. We want to hear this case. And so on Thursday, uh, was that Thursday? No, no, sorry, Wednesday. Um, the case are heard and the, get, the oral arguments were given. Now, we're not going to know about this result and probably next summer. Um, but um, yeah, uh, the case is going to go forward. And some of the, the questions from some of the court justices were pretty disturbing in terms of them indicating that they're, yeah, they're all kind of behind this. Um, there's <clears throat> on SCOTUS blog, for example, there was a interesting discussion about Amy Coney Barrett's position on this, um, and they think that she might not go along with the uh, the the extreme right wing um, majority on this. Um, we shall see how that works out. Um, but we're going to break a bunch of this stuff down a little bit more about what its implications are, what the case is about, and so on. On Monday, when we talk to Garen McGarian um, on Out to Coop Live, set 7 p.m. on Monday. Um, so there we have it. A um, couple other things going on. Uh, we also had WNBA star uh, Brittany Griner return to the U.S. or spending months in a Russian prison for trumped up drug charges and drug trafficking charges, which is pretty crazy. Um, it's uh, I, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, this is like I mean, what do you do with with uh, with something like this kind of Russian state? I mean, it's in the what's done with Ukraine and so on. It just it's just nuts. But it was good to see her being brought home. Now, I guess um, it's a mixed bag because there was another guy that they were trying to get out um, and they couldn't get him out. But we shall see. Um, I wanted to take a little time in the first segment today um, to talk about this. Um, what has been emerging as a narrative about um, the crisis of in for U.S. colleges and universities? 
Um, I, I've mentioned this a couple times and on the show. And if you recall, um, I, I, I'm not quite sure if we talked about this or not on on, on air. Um, but I had Sean Crampsey on. Um, he's a governor, uh, the director of governor, uh, government relations for ABSCUF, the state faculty union, which I'm I'm a member of. Um, and uh, but I did talk to Sean a bit about this as there has been some articles that popping up and particularly there was one that showed up in the Chronicle of Higher Education um, about this kind of crisis in higher education. Um, and there's been more and more of these um, articles showing up right about this crisis. And what's what's fascinating to me about it um, is that it seems that. A bunch of this stuff. I'm just looking to see if I have this other. Uh, no, I don't have this other. I thought I had another article on this that I wanted to, to share with you, but I don't have it right at hand here. Um, anyways, the um, there's this. Most of the articles are focused. I should put it like this. Most of the articles are focused around this, say, this demographic trend. Okay, um, and the saying that this brings about this crisis in higher education. Okay, and the short story is something like this, right? Is that we had um, this this peak of enrollment, we had high enrollments up until about 2010, 2011 or so, right? And then um, the there came along the financial crash of the 2008, 2009. Right. So there's the Great Recession that kind of took place. And then and during that Great Recession, um, birth rates declined significantly. Right. I mean, not like going off a cliff, per se, but they declined. Right. Um, but there was also evidence that, you know, so that we had the peak in 2010 of birth rates, but they were already projected to start going down. Um, you know, whatever, whatever. We saw that, you know, 2010 was that was the peak of college admissions, I should say. I'm sorry, uh, college admissions. But birth rates had already started to drop. And then when the, the recession um, came, that it plummeted even further. OK, and then the key part is that it had did not kind of go back up again. Right. Is that once that there was the um, the drop off in birth rates, right, that that kind of remained fairly steady. OK, so that happened. And then, of course, we have the pandemic, right, which kind of adds another layer. So if you figure about this in 20, like if you think about birth rates in, in 2010, right, if you're kind of, uh, you know, if you're seeing declining birth rates beginning to say 2010, you're talking about, um, you know, individuals who are now, um, you know, 22, 21. And if the birth rate kept on going down after that, right, you're basically going to see the um, a pattern of um, declining numbers of potential college students, right? And so as a result, you're going to have fewer students. And as a result of that, you're going to have um, colleges who are no longer going to bring in tuition dollars. And as a result of that, they're going to be in financial crisis, right? Um, and that's the big story that these, you know, keeps on appearing. Now, when I would say it keeps on appearing, this was in, uh, you know, the Chronicle of Higher Education, for example, um, was has has had several articles on this. Um, you've had Inside Higher Ed, 
uh, which is another kind of like, you know, industry kind of publication, which where that initial article that I was talking about with Sean Crampsey about uh, that initial article was kind of flagging the problem of state universities, in particular Pennsylvania. Right. So it was just kind of this interesting. Um, I noted it then. Now it's showing up in like here, like in Vox, for example. Right. This is the incredible shrinking future of college. Um, which uh, was written by this guy, Kevin Carey. And this is actually shared to me, um, shared with me uh, from a colleague of mine, Colleen, who uh, said, did you read, she's like, you know, did you see that piece from Vox? I'm like, no, next, it was on Shippensburg, uh, which is obviously, you know, state system of higher education. And um, it it's not just on Shippensburg, but Shippensburg is kind of where this whole article starts. And it's written by this guy, Kevin Carey, okay? And um, we see some of the same kind of now the same kind of arguments in this piece, um, and let me just I want to check out something real quick. Um, <clears throat> okay, and the gist of it is this: I want to just kind of read you just a just a, a brief piece of this, right? So I want to give you just to give you a flavor of it. This is how it's a really well-written article. So here it goes. It goes in 20 in 2021, Shippensburg University won the NCAA Division II field hockey championship, completing an undefeated season with a 3-0 victory over arch rival Westchester. The Ship Raiders also won it all in 2018, 2017, 2016 and 2013, which I know because I saw it written in big letters on a banner festooning the field house on Ship's campus in South Central Pennsylvania when I visited last month. Ship was in fine form. Young men and women wearing logoed champion sweatshirts bustled between buildings. There was a line at the coffee shop in the student union. It was the kind of bright blue autumn day that you would see on a brochure. There was no way to tell from the outside that Ship was a, was a shrinking institution or that the problem was about to get worse, a lot worse, not just here, but in colleges and universities nationwide. In four years, the number of colleges graduating from high schools across the country will begin a sudden and precipitous decline due to a rolling demographic aftershock of the Great Recession. Traumatized by uncertainty and unemployment, people decided to stop having kids during that period. But even as we climbed out of the recession, the birth rate kept dropping, and we are now starting to see the consequences on campuses everywhere. Classes will shrink year after year for most of the next two decades. People in the higher education industry call it the enrollment cliff. Among the small number of elite colleges and research universities, think the Princetons and Penn States, the cliff will be no big deal. They, those institutions can have their pick of applicants and can easily keep classes full. For everyone else, the consequences could be dire. In some places, the crisis has already begun. College enrollment began slowly receding after the millennial enrollment um, wave peaked in 2010, particularly in regions that were already experiencing below average birth rates while simultaneously losing population to out-migration. Starved of students, the tuition revenue they bring, small private colleges in New England have begun to blink off the map. Regional public universities like SHIP are enduring painful layoffs and consolidations. Quote, uh, classes will shrink for most of the next two decades. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, right. The timing is terrible. Trade policy, deunionization, corporate consolidation, and substance abuse have already ravaged countless communities, particularly in the post-industrial Northeast and Midwest. In many cases, colleges have been one of the only places to provide good jobs in their communities, offering educational opportunities for locals and have strong enough roots to stay planted. The enrollment cliff means they might soon dry up or blow away. Right. So that's kind of that's the setting the stage. Okay. And um, 
And that that's a I think a fairly good summation of the kind of argument that we're seeing and the kind of narrative um, that we're seeing. Okay. Now, there, there's a there's a few issues here. Now, I, I have to say a little bit further um, down in this article, Kerry uh, does acknowledge that there's been some other co contributing factors in here, but I want to tell a little bit of a story about what happened well some of the choices that were made to get us where we are right um and why the narrative being told about this demographic cliff um has it is more indicative of the way that we understand higher education or the way we do politics um in this country and in the state than anything else so bear with me for a minute um i was the uh, vice president of our faculty union for uh for a bit and um, during that time, um, uh, we would, you know, I would be part of the job of that was you lead your meet and discuss time and meet and discuss is when you have uh, representatives from the union meet with representatives of the administration to talk about kind of kind of contractual or kind of issues on campus. Right. So the idea is there is that when you have a, a union contract, the contract doesn't just happen by itself. Right. Issues come up and there's things that need to be addressed and you have to be get clarifications on things. And the administration does certain things that um, that are maybe questionable or different policies. It's an opportunity to kind of have that kind of um, co-governance. Right. Now, in the best case scenario. Right. Um, which is not the scenario in which I was there. The best case scenario that you bring problems to the table and you're able to kind of like get one clarity about what's going on two um a kind of understanding and three a resolution right i mean that's your best case scenario um but there's often times when you're just going to disagree right um you're going to have disagreements over the way things are uh, are being proposed or whether going forward um and then sometimes you file grievances or sometimes the policy wins out and things like that the biggest problem is, is that if you don't have, if there's not open communication, right, if you have administrations that are um, not being transparent with their budgeting process or not being transparent with the decision making process or not sharing the rationale for the decision or giving cover stories to them, which has been the case traditionally at Kutztown University, um, then those become kind of more contentious, right? They have kind of more problematic or you're not able to do problem solving. It's more of a kind of performance, if you will, right? Because um, nothing happens, right? Because if you're not going to get movement, if there's not a, there's not an agreement that we're there to kind of solve problems. So anyways, back, you know, this is not the current president, but the previous president of the university was a guy by the name of Javier Ceballos. Mm. And there was this, this period of time, which we saw an increasing number. So I, I came to Kutztown in, in 2022, right? And when I came in 2022, the, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, not 2022, 20, uh, 2002, my bad, um, 2002. Um, and when I came to, uh, at Kutztown, we were right about, I think just below 8,000 students, if I, if I am recalling this correctly. Um, and then over that next several years, right, you think about, you know, if that peak enroll, uh, that that peak birth rate was our peak and kind of high school graduation was 2010. So that period of time was on the upswing. Right. And um, what was happening is that the uh, the administration was um, in, in kind of emitting more and more students. Right. Um, 
and because there's you know more competition to get in they're able to kind of um, bring in more students and we had to the place where we literally did not have enough faculty members to cover classes right we had actually some classrooms which were uh, exceeding fire code right um they were they the administration was scheduling more students that were legally allowed to be in the classroom in the classroom right so and the re part of the reason that that happened is that in 2004 or 2006, maybe it was 2006, we had a really bad contract. Um, at, at the, it was the first time that we saw basically these kind of like union busting tactics being deployed by um, by the statewide, uh, the Pashi administration. Right. There was a chancellor by the name of uh, Linda Rinker, um, who basically was not doing what had been traditional, which is like working together with the union to come up with a good solution for everybody, right? No, they were pushing an agenda, uh, an agenda that has been pretty consistent ever since, right? And it is consistent with everything that you'll ever read about neoliberalism, um, about the privatization and corporatization of higher education, uh, was, that was all for full display. The thing is, the faculty union at the time was not prepared for that. Um, despite the warning signs being there, and several of us saying this and kind of like being part of our statewide governing body saying to our leadership no this is going to be a problem this is a problem they didn't believe it whatever but it became a problem so one of the big things that happened in that contract was the it was the first time that there was going to be a dramatic shift in uh, medical benefits and basically what they said is that look if you um if you retire now you can retire under your current contract, right? Which is good medical benefits through retirement. If, however, you stay in the new contract, you're not going to get those benefits, right? That's going to be different things that it's going to change um, for now on, right? So there's a lot of people who are at retirement age because um, th by that point, there was a lot of kind of older faculty members and they were like, okay, we're going to take the deal. So we had like this mass exodus from the university, right? Literally my department uh, at the time, we were the largest department on campus. Um, we had, uh, let's say we had around a little over 40 uh, faculty members that went, we lost, I think 13 faculty members, not all of them for retirements, a couple of people left to take different jobs. Um, but it was a huge hit. And what happened next is that the administration said, okay, we're not gonna rehire those faculty. We're not gonna search for new faculty, right? So even though you had faculty lines that were budgeted for and all that, they decided not to renew that. And that wasn't just my department, it was across the university. So you had a shrinking faculty and the only faculty that they would hire were going to be adjunct faculty, right? What was called at the time temporary faculty members, right? Um, and that could be there on a part-time or a full-time basis, right? Um, but would not be kind of subject for tenure and they could fire them whenever they wanted to, right? So that's, and I'm being a little bit kind of reductive here. So you have increasing enrollments, you have decreasing faculty, right? And you have overcrowded classrooms. We didn't even have enough space. When we started hiring part-time faculty or kind of adjunct faculty, we didn't even have enough spaces to put people, right? We had to actually get trailers outside in the parking lot just to house additional classroom space and office space. It was, it was, pretty, it was pretty outlandish what was going on. And so we'd be at the meet and discuss table and we'd be saying, you know, look, this is a problem. We need to kind of hire like enough faculty to cover this. And what the line is that they gave us at the time 
was that, look, the demographic, this is a demographic bump. We can't go out and hire all these tenure track faculty members or permanent faculty members because we're, this is a peak. And they showed us the charts at the table and say, look, this is the high school graduations and is projected to decline after 2010. Right. So we have to start kind of like we have to plan for that decline. Right. So we can't have this big uptick. So that's why we need so many adjunct faculty. And, you know, we were kind of like, look, we understand if that's the case. However, we lost 13 permanent faculty members. This department lost kind of 10 permanent faculty members. Right. And that was and those are people who were teaching in those classrooms. Before the demographic bump. <laughs> right. So we understand the argument, say you don't want to increase like increase beyond your your previous capacity um but we have to plan for that right and so we have to we can't do this so by by not having enough faculty right now is not good so they said oh well, we're gonna do so what they did instead of hiring faculty members is that well they did two things one they built larger classroom buildings right so that basically you can have fewer faculty members teach more students right now that is a shift in education model Right. These state systems of higher education were primarily kind of teaching colleges initially before they became universities in like 1983, whatever it was. And so what they did is they basically increased the size of the classrooms. Right. As a way to compensate for not hiring. More faculty members. So if you think about it. The numbers, the you needed fewer faculty members to teach more students, right? But you also needed millions of dollars to build those buildings, right? And during that time, we were like, well, who's going to teach in those buildings? And they're like, well, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And they wouldn't tell us. And then finally, we, we forced it out of them, right? We forced them to give us like what they had. And it turns out they had hired an independent consultant Right. So they had to pay another hundreds of thousands of dollars to an outside consultant to determine which classes should be taught in the large classroom buildings. And they were not it was not based upon kind of any kind of pedagogical or academic or intellectual decision. It was based upon what they said. Well, most of these other colleges, they some of these other classes that teach in those in those classrooms. So they they decided without faculty input which classes were going to go in those large classrooms, and then suddenly thrust certain departments to teach in these primary large classroom buildings, right? Without any planning for it, right? So there's that. At the same time that that's happening, right? It turns out we find this out years later, but we kind of had to uncover this. It turns out that the universities, not just Kutztown University, but Westchester University, Shippensburg University, uh, Edinburgh University, Edinburgh's an outstanding kind of prime example of this, uh, East Stroudsburg University, right? Just in terms of the state system, we had them investing, taking out bonds, right? Um, to build luxury dorms, right? And kind of these kind of like mall-like environments, Right. Um, to, uh, quote unquote, appeal to more students. So they were basically shifting a model away from an academic recruitment model into a kind of consumer based model where they believe that the only way that students would come to your university is if they got the kind of amenities that were 
a luxurious. So instead of having dorm rooms, you had suites, right, in this large, like, brand new dorm building, right? Um, you had off-campus apartments were run by private companies but were funded by the foundations, right, and all this kind of stuff. And they used all these what's called off-balance sheet budgeting tactics as a way of producing two sets of books, right? They had one set of books that they would show us and that they would show state legislatures, and they had another set of books that they would show their finance, uh, say, the banks and the people who were giving them bond monies, right? Because they were able to, and again, both ways of doing the accounting were, were technically legitimate, but they were able to do some of these, you know, off-balance finance, financing um, schemes that just made, that made it very hard to get to the bottom of what was going on. All is said and done, right? This goes by kind of years, years go on. Now you have fewer faculty members with more students. Yes, the student body starts to come down a little bit. But then what happens is that all the money for all those bonds starts coming due, right? And we keep on hearing that, you know, Kutztown's been in a nonstop kind of like budgetary crisis since I've been there. And we kept on saying, like, well, how is it possible when you have like, all these students and f much fewer, fewer, significantly fewer faculty members. So more students paying tuition, fewer faculty members kind of costing the university anything. How is it possible that we're in this crisis, right? And it turns out because they were doing all these kind of budgeting schemes. Okay, so that's going on. Meanwhile, at the state level, right, in our state legislature, right, we saw like the domination of kind of Republican politics, right? The domination of this kind of like anti-tax, anti-government, um, anti-investment in public education, anti-investment in the public anything for that matter, also happening. So as universities were kind of doing that at the individual basis, you saw at the statewide, they were basically cutting um, the subsidies, right? They were cutting the kind of, or shouldn't say subsidies, the investments in public higher education in the state. So whereas initially, back when the universities were formed in 1983 or so, it was um, about 65% of the cost of attending um, a, a state system of higher education university, 65% was borne by, came out of the kind of like the public coffers out of our tax dollars, right? By 2008, 2009, 2010, we go up to say, bring it up to like 2000, 2018, 2020, I think the last one we saw, about now it's about 75% of the costs are borne by students and their families, right? So you had a political choice to divest from public higher education. That was true for K through 12 schools too as well. That's true to everything that is kind of a, a public service, right? So now during that same period of time, that you have students taking on more and more significant debt, right? And during this time, we're saying to the to the university, look, you know, where's where's where you what do you do with all this money? Why are you spending all this money on these dorms? Why are you spending all this time this money on these kind of like you know these luxurious gyms and all this other kinds of stuff that you got going on? If you're in a budget crisis, right? And you're like, well, 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 well the different kind of model, right? So now they've invested all this money in this kind of stuff. And then the number of high school graduates starts to go down, right? Consistent with what they told us would happen. But so they're basically telling us that we can't hire faculty members because 
of this kind of like demographic trend. Meanwhile, they're spending money and investing in things as if the demographic trend did that they pointed to us didn't exist, that we're going to keep on having enrollments go up. So they built an infrastructure for a student body that they knew was not going to be there in 10 years. What did they get out of it? Lots of kudos. Got their names on buildings. Right? That they were able to use the PR, right? Thing, hey, look at all the great stuff that we got. And time after time after time after time, what has happened is that when those bond things come due, right? Then they're like, oh, now we have a budget crisis. But you have a budget crisis that you created, right? And because we have fewer investments. And now, so what do they do? How do they, what do they make up? They have to pay it somehow. What do they do? They increase the number of fees on students. And student debt goes up. So what was once an affordable option becomes an unaffordable option. So not only do you have a decline in high school graduation rates, but you also have a disincentive to go to college because of the debt that you're going to incur, right? All that's going on. Another decision happens at the state at the statewide level in the legislature and things when you're looking at uh, organizations like Penn State, right? Penn State is not a state university. It is a state affiliated university, which basically means they're a private university that gets subsidies for in-state tuition. Right? They give subsidies to students for in-state tuition. There's more to it than that. But generally speaking, that's what we're talking about. And Penn State goes on a, a massive expansion trend. Right now. The state legislator oversees Penn State because it gets this this public money. So they could have questioned this, but they didn't allow. No, no, no. We're just going to. This is great. We're just going to expand this. So Penn State starts expanding like crazy. So does Temple to a certain degree. So does some of the other. So does Pitt to a certain degree to have all these branch campuses. Right. And they have the same data that we had about this demographic bump. But what they start doing is start building more and more and more of these branch campuses and try to get more of that. Now they put those branch campuses in direct competition with the state universities, right? And so you see where all this is all going, right? This all leads in a direction that if you no longer have the same number of student graduates, and that's going to be declining, and everybody knows it, but you're, in, but you're building and you're investing in this infrastructure that is, that is built for a different trend, you're going to hit a problem. And those people, both at the university level, the administrators at the university level, at the, the, the state legislative level, right, and the Penn State and all this kind of, nobody would listen to that because they were in this freaking feeding frenzy when it came to kind of like building and making things more attractive and PR. Right now, why am I saying all this? Well, in certain part, because where we are now is a direct result, right? This quote unquote crisis, because now we're seeing this demographic cliff, as they keep on calling it, or the enrollment cliff. Number one, just so you know, right, when you in, when you you're tracking birth rates and high school graduation rates, you can correspond your birth rates to a high school graduation rate roughly 18 years in the future, right? So you have 18 years to prepare and to transition for one or the other. Instead, what we have seen 
is we've seen decision after decision at the, the administrative level and at the kind of legislative level that is that refuses to acknowledge what the trend is and act in reverse and act in ways are, I should say in reverse, acting in ways that are kind of against the trends. And meanwhile, they blame faculty members, staff members, students for the problem. It's either a force of nature, there's nothing out of our control, there's a crisis, there's a crisis, as if, like, the people who were born last year are graduating for college next year, <laughs> right? Oh, there's no, nobody could have seen this coming. No, no, you chose to act in different ways. And so as a result, what is happening now about this closing, like there's a story here, Casanova College, which is not far from where I grew up. Casanova is in uh, New York State. It's a small uh, university. They only have about, I want to say about, you know, 1,200 students, something like this. One of these kind of small liberal arts private schools and things like that. One that is completely dependent on tuition, right, because they're not a, a state institution at all. Um, they just announced that they're going to close. We saw several of these small liberal arts um, um, places close, right? If you're running on tuition dollars, right, running everything on tuition dollars and tuition is so expensive that people can't afford it and we see a growing inequity in terms of uh, wealth distribution, income distribution in this country, right, once again, it makes sense that people are not going to be able to afford those things. Right. But here we are, right, and so for me, the reason I tell that story Right. And, and I recognize it take like I've taken so much time to be able to even talk about this story. And it's frustrating to have to tell the story again and again and again and again. But it's to say that. Accountability should match. The people responsible for the quote unquote crisis. Right. And unfortunately, that's not kind of where we're at. We're at in this. This is why I call this the shock doctrine kind of mentality. Right? It's a shock doctrine mentality because in a shock doctrine, this is kind of Naomi Klein's term, right, is that you use crisis in order to kind of enact major trends. And that is precisely what we see happening at the state system of higher education right now. You got the perfect guy in there right now, Daniel Greenstein. In there, basically, uh, the chancellor of the state system of higher education, Daniel Greenstein in there because he knows what to do with crisis. Right. He sees crisis as an opportunity comes out of Silicon Valley, right, where they like to kind of like move fast and break things, as they say. Right. And to kind of transform things, to be innovative, to be dis disruptive of the higher education sphere. They love it when they are disruptive of things. And so they could put their own name on stuff and then they could be extra special because they are the ones who did it. Right. Even though they'll be long gone when the kind of real crisis really hits as the result of their work. But no matter. Put on a nice shiny face. You kind of use all the right words. Sound real smart. That's all you need to do. So why I say this going forward, like I've said before, is that uh, Abscoff is going into a contract negotiation year. Um, we see several school districts doing this too as well. Um, but as a state system of higher education, we see going into a contract negotiation year, the discourse is going to be about crisis. The discourse is going to be about there is nothing we can do. The discourse is going to be, the narrative will be about faculty 
can't expect anything now because we're all in the same boat. There's just not the money to spend. Right? We've heard all this before. You can't bleed a stone. You know, all those kind of cliches that get used at times like this. Right? And from my perspective, one of the things that has to be part of the pushback is that we didn't cause the crisis. You did. And here's why. You ran us into the ground. You need to be accountable for this. Right? And there needs to be a strong pushback from the kind of faculty union and faculty as a whole and students, frankly, because students are the ones who are paying in some ways the worst price, right? Through the kind of debt they've been forced to incur because of the declining, um, you know, public monies that are going into invest in our public higher education. But there's a bigger question here. It's not just about the contract, right? Let me just give you an alternative like model. Let's just say that we have the same data. We have demographic trend data that we can look at, right? And if you're planning, especially as a state institution, right? If you have roughly 15 to 18 years to plan ahead to any towards of significant, you know, change in demographic changes, right? Then you could actually plan together with faculty about the kind of the shape and size of kind of different departments and programs and so on. And if you have the right amount of public funding like that, that's as, as if we actually, as a people, decided that we were going to invest in public higher education like they do in, oh, I don't know, every other industrialized country in the, on the planet. And frankly, most of the most of the kind of developing world, too, as well. If you make higher education kind of free and available to all. Right through that investment, then what you're doing at the university level or at the college level, right, is that you're going to recognize there are going to be times when you're going to have a little bit of a larger class, right, uh, classes, right, because of these demographic bumps, right? Class size might kind of increase for a short period of time, and everybody would be aware of that. And you know that it would start on this date, and it would go roughly to this date before we're going to have to have, make any kind of significant change before we see it come down again. That's good. But on the flip side of it, there's going to be times where there's going to be demographic dips. And that means necessarily that class size will go down. Right? And if there's different kind of models, so like when, when class size starts to go down, you can start behaving more like a kind of small liberal arts college. And when it's going to have to balloon a little bit, then you start behaving more like a kind of a larger university. But that's the flexibility you can build into that if you're actually planning for that. But it's only you can only do that if there's adequate investment in public higher education. You can only do that if we start to turn around the trend of kind of privatizing everything, corporatizing everything and kind of destroying the public sphere. And that's a political battle. That will not be solved. Let me be clear. That will not be solved within this faculty contract, right? That ABSCUF is going to have to fight this year. The words I keep on hearing from everybody is like, it's going to be bad. It's going to be tough to negotiate. It's going to be a bad situation. It's going to be blah, 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 right? People are already starting to think about, well, are we going to have to go on strike again, right? And that, all that's already you know going. And you look at what's happening around the country, 
higher ed's on strike everybody everywhere. You just had the largest strike in kind of you know basically U.S. history in public sector out in uh, out in California with the adjunct faculty or, or with the faculty strike. Right, you just have a, um, teachers in uh, the new school in New York City walked off the job. Right, uh, going on strike for this. I mean, you see graduate students going on strike. I mean, you know, this is this is a indicative of what has happened to higher education across the board. And I say that like in all hopes, right, that 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 faculty members, right, especially unionized faculty members, can see that and kind of work together in order to push back against those trends. We get to use this faculty contract negotiation as a way to push back against those trends. We demand more funding for the state system of higher education. We demand, you know, that we're going to have kind of fair and equitable um, transparency of, you know, uh, of the book. We, a whole bunch of things. But we use it as an opportunity to push this into the public that we need to kind of invest in these things. Right? Because this is a long, this is the war, not the battle. And I think that becomes so so important because what tends to happen at kind of any individual workplace, right, any individual university at any particular time is when there's austerity and people push down, people turn on each other because it's easier to do it that way. Yeah, this faculty member looked down on that faculty member because, oh, I published in more prestigious journals than you did or I publish more and you do all the service work. Right. And say my department, my field is more important. So, you know, yours, if you, they eliminate yours, that's okay because yours is irrelevant, right? That kind of nonsense. That has been happening, for example, in the, for the humanities for ages, right? You go after humanities. You go after these things that kind of don't immediately translate into corporate goods, corporate logic, corporate greed, or aren't about like, money and math or numbers and math, right? So that's been a story that's been going on for decades, right? And so when you tend to put exert pressure downward, right? Um, by basically saying we're in a budget crisis, we're in a crisis, people tend to turn on each other, right? People elevate their own self-importance and point down at others and say that you are less important. So maybe you deserve to be treated like that by the administration. Maybe you don't deserve to have your job renewed because I'm better than you are. That kind of nonsense. We should recognize that discourse is all I'm saying. I know my Abscuff brothers and sisters out there, let's take lessons from our kind of uh, higher ed union uh, brothers and sisters across the country who know what solidarity is. And uh, that we don't turn on each other in these times. Um, we've got to find ways of support and ways of getting our message out. That's what I was saying. Anyways, I went on that a lot longer than I was going to go on it. Um, so sorry to bore all of you who are <laughs> not interested in what's going on in higher ed. But uh, for me, it's one of the spaces that we need to push back. Anyways, I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about um, what's happening here in Pennsylvania. Um, particularly at the school board level and beyond. Um, and then we'll kind of be off for a uh, fun-filled, fun-packed weekend. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be uh, spending the time grading. So it's going to be so much fun. Yay. 
So here we go. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney. Um, I am the creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Remind you can help support this program by heading on getting on over to patreon.com slash rcpress where you become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1869. That was the day a new union named the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor was founded. It started in Philadelphia as a secret society of tailors, but soon the knights expanded to workers in other trades. The knights' unions were vertically organized. This meant each union included all workers in a given industry, regardless of craft. This was a different philosophy from most unionism of the time, which focused on craft-based organizing. The Knights also accepted workers of all skill levels, as well as women. African Americans were also accepted after 1883, although often in segregated locals. The most well-known Knights leader, Terence Powderly, took office in 1879. By 1886, the group had grown to more than 700,000 members. The Knights championed the cause of the eight-hour day. While the Union supported boycotts and arbitration, it remained very weary of strikes as a tactic. The Knights did support the Chicago General Strike for the eight-hour day that started on May 1, 1886. After the bomb incident at the rally in Haymarket Square, the Knights were unfairly singled out for blame. Due to the backlash over Haymarket, the Knights' membership suddenly and dramatically declined. The widespread repression of labor unions in the 1880s led to the union's demise. The newly emerging American Federation of Labor replaced the Knights of Labor at the head of the labor union movement. The AFL focused on organizing by craft as opposed to industry. But the Knights of Labor had helped to show that inclusive unionism was possible. Labor must reap what labor does so. Labor must reap what labor Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Hey, everybody, everybody, welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, uh, here for a little PA focus. So we have some kind of interesting things. I'll do the kind of quick stuff up top here. Uh, congratulations to the workers at the uh, Starbucks on MacArthur Road in Whitehall Township. Um, they now have a union. Yes, they voted 16 to 10 in favor of forming the union. Uh, it's great to see uh, the union movement start hitting up here in kind of eastern PA. Uh, we know that there's been uh, movements in Philadelphia, uh, in Pittsburgh. We've been seeing a lot of activity going out of there. Start to see this hitting in kind of right here in the, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if we've got any in Bucks County yet, but, uh, you know, see up in Lehigh, uh, Lehigh Valley is pretty freaking awesome. So congratulations to all the folks up in, uh, in Whitehall um, for that union. And good luck on your first contract because um, that's where you're going to, uh, it's going to be good for other kind of union members uh, in the area to, to reach out and help support them. I know I'm going to be following that. Uh, I'm going to do my best to show up at any events that they've got um, up there in the Lehigh Valley. Um, so um, kudos to them. Um, so I found these are kind of like a couple of interesting things that I want to put on the table. I mean, uh, the Bucks County, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. The Bucks County beacon, uh, had a great article this week, um, that was about 
the Pennsylvania uh, Department of Education um, putting out a, um, a some new standards for um, oops uh, for what they're calling the uh, culture responsive teaching or diversity equity inclusion. So um, uh, well, actually, it's called culturally relevant uh, culturally relevant sustaining education. Those are what the standards are for. Um, but really, it as I was saying in the at the intro to the show, it comes out with um, it basically it emphasizes this kind of cultural responsive teaching and or what is called DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion. Now, you remember that uh, DEI uh, initiative have been happening in school districts all over the all over the Commonwealth. And this is true all across the, all across the country. Um, but, you know, because of a historic gap right in uh or or unwillingness or inability or whatever it might be um unwillingness or kind of uh lack of attention is that you know the curriculum right um is behind the demographic turn uh, turn and by demographic here i don't just mean numbers i'm also talking about who is actually in our classrooms right and that we i mean it's no secret that um we've seen kind of dramatic, you know, pretty significant demographic uh, trends over the course of the, you know, the past several decades, right? We have, we know that by, by the middle of the century, um, that um, kind of white people, like whatever, will be, um, uh, will be a plurality, not a majority anymore, um, that you'll have, they'll be in the minority, if you will, you know, um, but a plurality of the whole. But um, that's been true in our area, like here in Bucks County, we see that kind of increasing numbers of kind of um, kind of Latino um, in uh, uh, Arabic, um, Indian, right? a whole bunch of different kind of like um, um, African-American um, got people kind of like moving in these areas. Right. Um, and as a result, you have kind of more people of color, more people from different kind of uh, uh, religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds in the schools. Right. And there's but the curriculum you know hasn't kind of really addressed that in kind of any formal way so these dei initiatives right um you know diversity equity and inclusion initiatives were meant as a way to kind of say okay let's take a look at what's happening in our communities and let's make sure that our teaching is kind of responsive is going to meet those students kind of where they're at and that maybe our curriculum should also kind of um think about how we engage in this kind of, you know, multi-ethnic kind of multicultural um, context. Um, that's become especially relevant in communities like here in Bucks County, for example, that had been historically like, like, like overwhelming majority white, but that's been being changing, right? So then, what, you know, especially if you have really conservative areas and things like this, but if you have, um, um, if it's, if it's left unattended, right, there's the, there's the, there's the the possibility of um, really kind of unthought through and um, unconscious, if you will, I'm being overly generous here, um, biases being brought in, racist biases, right, um, cultural biases, um, anti kind of Muslim, for example, biases um, could kind of be become part and make you, and make it kind of make the school environments less welcoming to those students. Right. We've seen this come up also when it comes to LGBTQ students. Right. We've seen this right across the board. If those students don't see feel like school is a place for safety, school is a place where they are they are heard to as well, where they see themselves in their own histories and their backgrounds as part of the educational process, then those students are going to are not going to perform at the levels of, of, say, the kind of white students who are supported in that, who do get the benefits of all those things. Right. 
So for someone like me, this is just common sense, right? Is you, is you, if your goal in education is to make sure that all the students in a particular area are going to feel that the school is a place where they can learn, where they can be heard, where um, they're going to be seen, where they're going to uh, kind of feel safe. If they don't, you know, we want to make sure that, that that's going to happen. There's also been happening in terms of, you know, a whole bunch of moves um, in kind of like uh, in, in kind of thinking about disability or thinking about um, kind of neurodivergent folks, about how we actually make our schools more open, right, and flexible and kind of uh, kind of accommodating to these um, different groups. And by accommodating, I don't mean just like we make exceptions for them. What I mean is that, you know, that your teachers are prepared for if you have, you know, students are coming in with a particular set of kind of needs or skills that you're not trained in, you want to make sure that you're able to get trained in that, right? You also want to be aware of your own biases that you may be bringing to the table so you don't unintentionally, right, um, alienate a student, right, or kind of like all that kind of stuff, right? For me, that's what education is about, right? You're constantly having to evaluate and reevaluate kind of where things are um, and making sure that you're kind of responding to the actual students in the classroom, not some kind of, you know, um, mythic student that is you have in your brain. So that's what it is. And so, you know, Pennsylvania did not have any standards for this stuff, right? How to make sure that um, this kind of culturally relevant teaching, a culturally relevant standards is part of the curriculum too as well, right? Obviously it does things for math and science and all this stuff, but this becomes part of it too as well. Um, so that's pretty, pretty, I mean, pretty amazing, especially given all the um, kind of anti-critical race theory hysteria that has been um, kind of running rampant um, through our Commonwealth. Um, this, these new competencies uh, we'll have here, um, um, they've been adapted by uh, this book called uh, Culturally Responsive Teaching, a guide it's written by a woman, Jenny uh, uh, Munez. Um, and to give you a kind of brief rundown of what this is, is that competency number one, reflect one's own cultural lens, to consider and reflect on personal biases that one might have, particularly as a member of a various identity group, such as race, skin color, ethnicity, gender identity, age, nationality, language, class, economic status, ability, level of education, sexual orientation, religion, identity politics. As frequently, you know, these are things are uh, frequently targeted as, you know, conservatives. Another one is identify or deeping understanding of and take steps to address the biases in the system. Right. So, again, if the goal in a democracy is to have a fair system, right, where you have kind of equal opportunity, you're kind of looking for skills that kind of identify that stuff. Right. Competence number three, design and facilitate culturally relevant learning that brings real world experiences into educational spaces. You know, this goes all the way back to John Dewey stuff, right, that you actually want to have, you know, not simply just abstract knowledge, but you actually want to have um, kind of, you know, uh, real world experiences in here. Um, excellent stuff. Competency number four, provide all learners with equitable and differentiated opportunities to learn and succeed. Competency number five, promote asset-based uh, asset perspectives about differences. That is, this is a really good one. This one's simple. Treat diversity as an asset, not as a problem, and treat people with respect even if they're different. Like, as the, I've always thought about this, right? You know, you think about the value, right? And, and you know, again, this is, I, I don't know, whatever. It's just brought up this way. It's like, yeah, people that are different, right? The first thing is like, you know, oh, I, I want to, you know, what's, what do I need to know, right? You know, especially I can remember even when I was a kid, right? Having, you know, folks that were coming in that were, that were English was not their, you know, their, their, their primary language, right? Um, and so, if so, oh, if my goal, if I want to have, like, communicate with this person or understand this, I need to, 
you know, what, what do I need to know? Like, you know, maybe I could learn some Spanish words or maybe I could learn um, some Spanish. And what they do actually, what's been really actually cool to see happening with my kids is when they've had students who come in who are um, non-native English speakers, they've come into the classroom, you've had teachers who are trained in what to do with this. And they use that as an opportunity for the students in the class to kind of like meet that other student kind of halfway. I mean, again, it's like, I'm not trying to paint utopia here, but it's like the idea is that, okay, if this student teaches Spanish, well, maybe we as a class should be learning some Spanish words and that student can actually help kind of us understand what these Spanish words mean, right? And so not only are you kind of, does everyone benefit from that kind of engagement, but that student is put in a role of expert, right? Not as deficient, but as expert because they're the ones who speak the language, right? So, I mean, that's the way, in my, my view, the best case scenario about how you want education to operate, right, is that difference is that asset. And if we're reflective about it, right, not like resistant to it, we're reflective about that, then we all benefit. And like even research bears this stuff out, right? Those students who are in a situation where, you know, diversity by itself, right, promotes kind of learning, even for those folks like who are anti, you know, against the diversity, right? Because they're forced to engage with difference and different ideas. But if you flip the mentality as a way of like, I wanted everything to be my way, but you think about it as like, oh, we have a whole bunch of different ways of kind of thinking about stuff here. Let's see that as an asset so we can see a problem from all these different kind of angles, right? This is an example. Another one, uh, uh, competency number six, collaborate with families and communities through authentic engagement practices. Oh, my God, this is freaking awesome, right? Getting out of the school and into the community. How awesome is that? Competency number seven, communicate in linguistically and culturally responsive ways that demonstrate respect for learners, educators, educational leaders, and families, just like I was talking about. Competency number eight, establish high expectations for each learner and treat them as capable and deserving to achieve success. Bingo. Um, competency number nine, educate oneself about microaggressions and their impact on diverse learners, educators, and families, and actively disrupt the practice by naming and challenging its use, right? This is one of the ones that's been particularly targeted, as is mentioned in the in the Bucks County Beacon article, one that's mentioned um, in, uh, by the whole anti-CRT crowd, right? So why do I kind of mention this? Why is it great that it's out here? Well, you see the fact that they're doing this at the the at the, the, the state level, right? At the, at the level of the Commonwealth, that they're putting in these new standards. Some folks might look at this and say like, ah, great. You know, uh, the state is coming to the rescue, right? You know, you know, they're going to finally uh, deal with this, uh, that what we're, the problems that we're having to deal with, you know, uh, through individual school board um, conflicts and so on, that's going to be kind of these standards are going to take these away. I would kind of suggest that that's not what's going to happen is basically what's going to happen. This is going to set us up for uh, a very contentious school board election year. Right. Um, my guess is that there that this stuff is going to get used as a whipping post um, by the far right as a way to kind of drum up the same kind of racist, anti-immigrant, um, you know, white supremacist kind of notions that we've been hearing in school board meetings for here. So be prepared for that. So one positive development. Right. Um, at finally, we're getting this kind of these competencies that are being built in by the Department of Education. Secondly, don't assume that that's going to mean that all the stuff is going to go away because it's not. It's going to get it's going to ramp up, especially in districts like Bucks County in, in Bucks County, where we've seen been at the kind of forefront of a lot of this stuff out in York. Like there's doing a lot of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, um, there's that. And the one other thing I wanted to kind of mention, um, this really one cuts close to home 
is this past Monday, uh, the Penridge School District um, moved forward with a plan to basically cut social studies requirements um, despite really strong opposition from parents and teachers and students and members of the community. Um, to give you a little breakdown here, this is a really good summation that's coming out of uh, the reporter online. Um, the Penridge School Board this week narrowly adopted a controversial policy to reduce the social studies credit requirements from four to three. Policy 217, as it is known, attracted fierce opposition from teachers, student community members, and some board members as it was twice tabled, it was tabled twice in past meetings. Opponents argue that it slashes important instruction and will force faculty to rewrite an entire social studies curriculum, while the policy proponents on the, boards, uh, on the board argue that it enhances student choice, particularly for tech students. Multiple petitions were launched against the policy, one garnering over a thousand signatures. In anticipation of a final vote on the policy, a large crowd turned out for the school board meeting on Monday evening, December 5th, to make one final plea to the board to vote it down. The school board president, Joan Cullen, had removed the policy from the agenda primary to the meeting due to last-minute change that was made without prior notice. The new iteration of the policy appeared to maintain the required world history course for juniors, while the previous iteration had made the course optional. Despite this change, the board voted 5-4 to four to add the policy back to the agenda for a second vote and final reading vote. Following the vote was nearly an hour of public comments in which faculty, students, parents, and community members unanimously denounced the policy. Fantastic. This is, and I just want to read some of these comments. Uh, not, not fantastic that, that that happened. It's fantastic that there was that denouncing this, this kind of community movement, which is going to be very good for the folks that are trying to kind of push back against these extremists. So they give a bunch of kind of folks oh, here. So Holly Pollock, she's the president of the Penridge Education Association. She asked the board to respect the expertise of teachers who support maintaining the current credit requirement. She said that students already have ample choice in their class selection, and the board has a responsibility to listen to input from all stakeholders, all of whom oppose the policy. Quote, our task is to ensure that students leave Penridge with the education they need for good, to be good citizens of the community, the United States, and the world, Pollock said. Robin Reed, who you've heard mentioned on this um, on this program before, she has been uh, highlighted by Will Bunch. She's been um, in the Bucks County Beacon. But Robin Reed, a student, um, I think she's a senior this year, uh, said the policy could prevent students from taking AP social studies courses that are sophomore and junior years, jeopardizing their chance of getting in accepted elite universities. She further condemned the board for using um, tech and band students as justification for the change. If you're going to push this through, take some accountability and don't blame my friends, Reed said. Isabella Clemens, a sophomore, agreed and noted that AP courses provide much-needed college tuition relief. She further stated that the plans on pursuing, uh, she plans on pursuing a STEM-related field and that uh, there are, quote, no shortage of STEM options at Penridge under the current credit requirements. Noelle White, a Sellersville senior, said the, uh, pol the policy would harm students' education by forcing them to learn more history in a shorter period of time. She commended the current curriculum for broadening students' perspectives and cultural outlooks, quote, Taking away a history credit requirement will send the message that history is not important. This mindset, frankly, is ignorant, will only breed hate and prejudice in the community. Ding, 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 ding. Way to go, no, no, Noel White, 100%. Um, then you get into the teachers. Um, Angela Schodel, a high school studies, uh, social studies teacher, said that there will be horrific consequences if the policy is passed and we express exasperation at the board's repeated refusal to listen to teachers. Quote, we are tired of having to fight members of the school board who have openly, publicly, and repeatedly undermined the expertise and recommendations of the experts, the teachers, and the administrators. What qualifications do you have to make such draft, drastic curricular changes, um, asked Schodel. 
um, quote, or sorry, stop being so steadfast in your positions of power and start serving the community for whom you voted for. Stephanie Nash, a high school social studies teacher, said she had not had a single student in the recent past who was unable to select a desired class. Quote, if this is the attitude that our students are taking, what is it saying about the rigor of our school? Right. Or I'm sorry, because I missed this part, um, that there's some students basically want to cut out on classes. So they go home and take a nap by having fewer requirements. She said, what is this? What is this saying if we're supporting that? Um, Bob Cousineau, uh, Cousineau, another high school stu social studies teacher, warned that elimination of the forced uh, social studies credit requirement would enable students to instead take study hall and early release. Quote, all of it indicates that this is exactly what most seniors will do, Cousineau said. Quote, the overwhelming majority of seniors have late arrival, lunch release, or early release. Right? Now, what had happened is that you had um, <clears throat> Bannis Clemens, <clears throat> who is uh, Megan Bannis Clemens, who was the, was the strongest proponent of this, gave this lengthy speech, disparaged teachers, like <clears throat> talked down to them as, you know, quote unquote experts. <clears throat> She's also was recently elected now uh, at the same meeting was elected as vice president of the school board. Right. Um, the new school board president will be uh, David Rice. <clears throat> so here. Um, but. <clears throat> I was going to say about that. Oh, so she was basically and her argument was basically saying, yes, the reason why we have to do this is because the curriculum is so packed, right, that that the students who want to pursue kind of a tech degree, because she's also on the board of the Bucks County Tech School. <clears throat> she's the Penridge representative on that. Um, so it, because it's the it's, curriculum is too crowded, so they can't take the required classes. Right. Well. It turns out what that teacher is saying is like, no, actually, you look at when it comes to a lot of seniors, when they're kind of saying you're looking for um, credit, uh, graduating on time, you want all this kind of stuff. Guess what? Most of them have early release. They have late arrival. Right. And lots of study halls. So the choices that they're making, you're supposed to say students don't have any choice. They need to make choices. The choices that they're currently making is not like taking more classes. The choice is to take fewer, to get out of school earlier, right? Which you expect from kids, right? The point being is that that social studies class, particularly world history, right, is not standing in the way of people attending the tech school or people taking more STEM-related classes. It is not. What it represents, and Will Bunch does a great job uh, of breaking this down um, in his column um, this week, where he basically said, look, this is... Uh, here's what he says he says locally and he's talking about this well here should go down here so you think that groups like penn's annenberg center would advocate for more and better civics classes for america school kids would be having a moment right now instead they face stronger headwinds than ever it's not just that some traditional barriers the notion that studying history or how the government works uh, aren't career oriented or practical are still in place. But social studies curricula have now also been politicized across large swaths of the United States with bitter fights over whether anti-racism education is too woke and whether learning instead should be focused on narrow, narrowly defined patriotism and American exceptionalism. It says it can't be a coincidence that these lean years for civics and its broader um, classroom cousins social studies have coincided with the rise of political disinformation and a growing um, public acceptance of conspiracy theories. Right. And he says that civic education for all Americans has been on a long period of steady decline since the 1990s, when education of gurus suggested that we need to catch up with subjects in math and reading. And today, only seven states require even a full year of civics classes to graduate from high school. And it shows. Right. 
what Will Bunch does, he puts that in broader context, right? Basically saying, look, look, there has been an assault on this kind of stuff for um, since the 1990s, right? This is, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, old enough to remember we had William Bennett, who was the kind of educational czar under kind of, say, Bush and Reagan, well, basically said you wanted to eliminate, you know, things like the humanities, right? It was basically an earlier kind of predecessor of this kind of like anti-CRT nonsense that we get to, we get now. I mean, you need to kind of like this kind of white, kind of standard white great person curriculum is what we need, right? Um, and then also this kind of gradual push for the 90s. Then when you got to the Clinton administration, there was that strong push um, for math and science and STEM, right? And that crowded out humanities, crowded out music crowded out the arts because everyone started getting in this. And one of the kind of main proponents where the money came from was Bill Gates. Bill Gates, who just, by the way, that's where the chancellor of the higher education came from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working on higher ed as part of that foundation using this kind of logic. Anyways, but that was the idea, right? The idea is that everything's got to go towards math and science because we're deficient in math and science. And so we pushed aside the humanities. We did that at the K through 12 level. We were doing that at the higher education level, right? We're still doing that to this day, right? And at the expense of things like civics, right? Which you basically are teaching the nuts and bolts of like how to do democracy, <laughs> right? And Will Bunch basically, look at this, we shouldn't be surprised. If you start cutting away um, kind of the understanding of our past, you start cutting away and get, getting rid of our ability to kind of think about how to effectively participate in our culture. If you start cutting away right, um, our kind of critical thinking capacities right, um, and kind of dealing with diverse kind of ideas and, and problems, then you're going to kind of open the door for things like conspiracy theories. Right? And so he mentions Penridge in here, too, as well. We're saying, look, this is exactly what's going on. I'll read you what uh, Will Bunch said. It says, locally, the debate over the future of social studies education flared in the Penridge School District in Philadelphia's northern exurbs, a community that has been riven for the last couple of years by debates over issues like LGBTQ proud, proud, pride flags in the classroom and diversity education. But board members who voted five to four this week to reduce the number of social studies credits needed for high school graduation from four, a standard in most area districts, to three, claimed the move wasn't political. They intended to give students more flexibility to take college prep classes and to add requirements for personal finance course and give teens a practical skill. Penridge's downgrading of social studies appeared to be in line with the pre-pandemic and pre-Trump era trends of prioritizing science and technology over other subjects. But this move generated widespread opposition from teachers and students in Bucks County District, showing how the fight over what kids ought to be learning is becoming a front burner issue in the 2020s. 100%. Um, so there we have it. So we're going to be gearing up, folks. Uh, we're going to gearing up. Um, and I'll, you know, kind of remind you, that's one of the reasons why we started uh, early um, by setting up this uh, this community based pack um, with um, with Levelfield. Right. And it's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Check it out. Right. Um, see what it's about. And uh, we basically with that pack, we've kind of we started receiving donations last year. And with that pack, we basically we didn't spend the money for the midterm elections, <laughs> right? Um, the idea was that this, the whole thing is built around what is happening at the school board level, local in our communities. And now we've got school board elections coming up in 2023 and that we're going to need, um, you know, to kind of support those candidates now. So um, that's where we go. So you can check that out. Anyways, uh, thanks for all who kind of uh, joined the discussion today. Thanks you all for kind of tuning in. Um, I look forward to our discussion on Monday. Um, you can, uh, 
tune in to Out to Coop Live on Monday, uh, that's the 12th, at 7 p.m. And Garen McGarian will be on the show and we'll be talking and digging into the Moore v. Harper Supreme Court case, uh, which puts uh, really um, a big question mark around the future of American democracy. So uh, I'd urge you to be there for that discussion. Uh, and Garen's awesome. He's a, a phenomenal. He's on the show before. Um, he's great. Anyways, uh, that's what I got for today. Um, uh, thank you for tuning in on this uh, Friday Politics Roundup. I'm slowly finding my feet again after kind of just like an insane, like I, I said uh, last week, just being sick and uh, uh, trying to catch up on work and all this kind of stuff. And semester is closing out and uh, I'm, yes, still in grading mode, but at least I feel like I'm, I'm kind of back in this chair again. So thank you all. Uh, and thank you all for kind of take the time to share out the show. You know, I really appreciate it. Um, you take the time on Twitter. And I know Twitter is kind of exploding in weird ways these days. Um, but I've seen the show showing up on uh, on Mastodon um, and some other platforms, too, as well. I appreciate you taking the time and sharing out the show. Um, and uh, that's what keeps this thing a whole thing alive. So there. I remind you, you can also help support the show by going to patreon.com slash Press. You can become a patron of the show for as little as five bucks a month, and it helps us do what we do, helps us shine a light on the work that's happening in our communities, and helps amplify the amazing work that's already going on. So anyways, folks, uh, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we'll see you on Monday at 7 p.m. with Garen McGarian to talking about the Moore v. Harper case. Until then, have a great weekend. Good luck as we move into the end of the year. See ya! I'll fly